Dr. Jason Woods here, and this is the Little Big Med Podcast, where we're talking little patients, but big medicine. Today's guest is Dr. Danielle Serrano, an assistant professor of pediatrics, bioengineering, and medicine in the Department of Pediatric Nephrology at the University of Colorado in Children's Hospital, Colorado. The discussion ended up being so good and so expansive that I've split it into two parts. So part one today is going to be mostly on general approach to kidney disease in the acute care setting and a lengthy discussion on acute kidney injury. And then part two will include discussion of specific electrolytes and some more specific conditions like HUS. So asked Danielle to come by today because she is a great teacher to non-nephrologists about kidney problems. And I wanted to have an overview from her of emergent kidney-related things that we see in the urgent care or the ED and what we should be aware of, how we should treat them, and then any pet peeves she's got about things that we do that she wishes that we didn't do. So. Me have pet peeves? Come on, Jason. <laughs> so do you want to talk about acute kidney injury first? Acute kidney injury is really common, but I guess even before we get into any of the specific presentations that we want to talk about in the emergency department, like whether it's acute kidney injury or new diagnosis end-stage renal disease, just can be really scary right? Because there, there are a few rules in medicine, like your calcium should be higher than your potassium and your hemoglobin. And so these kids can present with like really scary numbers, right? So that can be scary. And then hyperkalemia, management, hypertensive, urgency, emergency, all these things are important, but not, I don't want to um, hide the take-home message. So upfront, the framework I use every kidney patient I see, well, every patient I see because I'm a nephrologist, but if you are a frontline provider and you think kidney for some reason, this is the framework. And it was taught to me by Doug Ford, who is a nephrologist here, uh, you know, where I trained and he's since retired. So I used to call it Ford's Four because it's just four things you need to assess. But now since people don't always know who Dr. Ford is and people actually thought it was like a medical like literature thing, we call it the fabulous four. So it's a mnemonic. So fabulous, F-A-B-U. And so function, anatomy, blood pressure, urine. And the take-home message is if one of these things is abnormal, you check the other three. There are probably some nuances in the emergency department. Like you're not always going to get an ultrasound to check anatomy. But basically, function is the hardest. That That's the end of the podcast right that, there. Yeah, function, well, function, <laughs> anatomy, blood pressure, blood pressure urine. And I, I hammer it into the residents and the medical students. And I tell them, I don't care what you do 10 years from now. To me, the liver is a black box and I, I don't really get it and you know whatever I don't want the, the kidneys to be a black box to anyone like this is a very simple approach and again I kind of gave Dr. Ford a hard time when I was, a, I was a little bit of a cheeky resident maybe I'm sure you're shocked I'm glad you're seated but he you know we cover seven states here and he would just be on the phone all the time and I there were all kinds of phone calls from like the western slope and Montana and um, you know every everything they wanted Every case he heard about, he really repeatedly just asked about these four things. And one day he hung up and I was like, Dr. Ford, you know, the kidneys are really complicated organs. <laughs> Do you think you might be oversimplifying things a bit? There's no way you can know everything with just assessing these four things. And he very patiently and kindly, as he was wont to do, looked at me and said, you know, Danielle, I've been doing this a while. He had. And the more I do it, you know, these four things cover 95% of what we need to know as nephrologists. And so that's the approach I take. And I'm, he's right. I mean, very rarely do I need to go much further. And fortunately or unfortunately, now the, the residents that we train are, are 
are aware of this. And so now when I get called for a consult, they've kind of already done my <laughs> initial <laughs> consult recommendations. And so then uh, I have that's to the put on- That's the sneaky reason you like I teaching. Know, and now I have to put on my varsity hat and really think more deeply because usually we, you know, just fix things by, um, you know, ju just doing the basics, but they're, they're well ahead of the game now. So yeah, so function anatomy, blood pressure, urine, function's the hardest, right? So taking a step back, um, functioning unit of the kidney is the nephron. Each kidney has about a million nephrons. Most people have two kidneys. Fun fact, one in 500 don't. And most people with a solitary kidney don't know they only have one kidney. But back to function. So if you think about the, the nephron, I could talk like just all day about how cool the nephron is, but we won't. There's a filter and there's a tubule. So if you think about function, you want to know are your filters filtering and are your tubules tubuling? What do we use to assess filtration? Serum creatinine, right? That's the common biomarker. Now, if you have a nephrologist involved, sometimes we'll send this to statin C, but on the front line, it's an expensive test and we want to do it thoughtfully. So serum creatinine is your thing. Remember, a normal serum creatinine is just based on how much muscle you have. So with my really big guns, sorry, podcast listeners. <laughs> um, you, you wouldn't believe how ripped she is. Yeah, <laughs> not really. Um, my serum creatinine is 0.78. I should probably get it rechecked. It's been a while. But um, how often as a nephrologist do you check your creatinine? Is this like what nephrologists do no, at No, this is for my disability insurance. You know, when I graduated, <laughs> all you providers out there, make sure you have some. Um, yeah, but like an NFL football player might have serum creatinine 1.4, typical adult male, you know, one MIGS per deciliter. But, you know, in kids, and again, this is fun, part of the joy of being a pediatrician or someone who takes care of kids, is that a normal creatinine varies greatly between infancy and adolescence and young adulthood. So a, a newborn's creatinine remember reflects moms, not the baby's. Mom is basically doing ECMO and CRT in utero for the baby via the placenta. So when the baby comes out, it's in isoequilibrium with mom. And then that nadirs in about a week, takes much longer in preemies. But suffice to say, serum creatinine. And so... We have estimating equations in kids to estimate what your glomerular filtration rate is. So GFR, remember, that's how we assess kidney function. Um, and a normal GFR is about 100 to 120, but kids don't reach that norm until about 19 months of age. Um, so again, if you have concerns, that's what nephrologists are, that's what we live and breathe for. There are some online tables you can look at as well, but don't hesitate to say, hey, is this creatinine a little bit generous for this kid, et cetera. The other important thing and when you assess function is you have to be in steady state. So if a kid has acute kidney injury or you think that they're not in steady state, you're getting a snapshot in time, but that does not mean that is their stable um, glomerular filtration rate. So that's filters filtering. Tubules tubuling, easy. You guys do it all the time. You look at the rest of the base of a metabolic panel. If their electrolytes are okay and if they can concentrate and dilute their urine... Your tubules are tubuling. Never heard it put that way. That makes me feel better. Like that I'm. This actually is probably why I'm not a highly esteemed nephrologist. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so that's function. Um, and so if you have abnormal function, remember you want to check the other three. What are the other three? Anatomy, blood pressure, urine. So again, ad anatomy might be the the least important one, not least important, but the less likely one that you're going to do urgently or emergently in the emerging department. But um, you just want to make sure they have two kidneys, right? Are they reniform? Are they in the right place? Are they cystic? Do they have stones? Do you have bilateral hydronephrosis, which you don't want just nephrology on that one. You want to call urology as well. So you can learn a lot from a quick renal ultrasound that's non-invasive. Now, if they've already had a CT or an MRI in their past that's documented normal kidney anatomy, I wouldn't repeat that unless there's a specific reason to do that. But that's that's kind of just a, an easy one. Again, as a nephrologist, I want to know, am I taking care of a kid with only one kidney and is it normal? So I always check that. Blood pressure. The big thing with blood pressure pressure is, you know, using the right size cuff, 
manual if you want to check the blood pressure. So anytime you're pushing a button uh, to check blood pressure, that's just an estimate. So this is important not just for hypertension, but also hypotension. Those kids who come in really ill appearing in the ED, you might be overestimating your systolic because those Dynamap, those machines, they measure the mean arterial pressure and then back calculate, i.e. guess, the systolic and diastolic. And so we have gotten used as you know, used to seeing these big pulse pressure, um, wide pulse pressures that should be concerning, but it's just because of how they're calculating the blood pressure. So if you're worried about either hypertension or hypotension, make sure you're actually auscultating or, of course, if the kid's ill enough, um, an arterial line. Um, but appropriate size cuff, upper extremity, they should be calm. They should. There's no crying in baseball and there's no crying in pediatric blood pressure assessment. Um, and please don't do a leg cuff. So, you know, as nephrologists, 90% of our consults for um, hypertension were an automatic cuff on the leg in a crying baby. And again, the residents have learned relatively quickly not to make that phone call. <laughs> I think I frustrate the nurses down down in the ER because they, they'll come to us with a blood pressure that's crazy high in a kid who has no reason to be hypertensive right. like, or, or they're there screaming and crying in pain. Right. And my answer is right. usually like, let's repeat it and we right. need to do a manual on the right. upper arm. And, yeah. Well, and, and that is, you know, that's a hard job, but I will say as a nephrologist, we, we will see like infants in clinic cause it's hard. It's easy for me to say, oh yeah, check a manual, but it can be a lot of work. And I, rem- I have many um, fond memories as a fellow in nephrology where, you know, our section chief and another nephrologist and I were holding the kid down and singing to them while we were trying to get a blood pressure. So this is kind of our jam. It's what we do. And so if, if it's a high reading that you're concerned about as an emergency care provider, just have them follow up with their PCP. And if their PCP can't, you know, find an appropriate cuff, then nephrologists are happy to help. I can't wait to call you at two in the morning to ask you. Maybe to come not in and at two in the morning. And, and give me have an <laughs> yeah, there, there, well, there's a there's a happy blood pressure song that sounds um, insanely similar to Happy Birthday, and I would highly recommend it. All right, so so we've been through our first three. Yeah, function, so function, anatomy, anatomy blood, blood pressure, pressure, and then the golden elixir of life, urine, right? So um, back in the Middle Ages, they called it the golden elixir of life. No one knew from whence it came, why it was important. The golden elixir of life. I'm not making this up. Yeah, Does no, it look that, I'm making this up? And I'm so, just saying that. That sounds way more exciting than pee. It is way more exciting. Um, I mean, it is exciting. So uh, basically, as nephrologists, we worry about is there protein, is there blood? Now, a take-home message for ED providers is if you have gross hematuria. So remember, it's not hematuria unless someone's documented red blood cells under the microscope. So the chemical dipstick does not count. This is a take-home message. Um, The chemical dipstick is super sensitive. So it will show large chemical blood if the moon is waxing or if the moon is waning. Also, if there's blood in your urine. Also, if there's hemoglobin or myoglobin. So just make sure you send the micro, which I know not all places can do overnight, but that's an important part. But if there really is gross hematuria, Absolutely, this is the case where you do need imaging. You don't want to miss a tumor. Um, there could be a stone, a cyst. Um, that imaging knee-jerk reflex. You, you want to do it, and certainly in adult medicine, it's you know going to be pathologic until proven otherwise. You know, worried about some type of carcinoma. So yeah, function anatomy, blood pressure, urine. If one of them's abnormal, you check the other three. So with that, I'm a nephrologist now. You basically are. Um, yeah, I can quit. I, I could not be an emergency <laughs> department doctor after this I, I mean, I brief conversation, I, though. I pretend a lot, and we do lots of coughs, colds, and sore throats. Let's just so. peeing and breathing, right? Yeah, yeah. just peeing and breathing. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, so with that, your I think your initial question was acute kidney injury. Yeah. So AKI is, you know, when we were training, we're not that old. I was still being trained even in fellowship. Well, it's just acute kidney injury, and it'll get better. It's 
kind of a no big deal kind of thing. And in the past few years, there's been a much, there's a, a, a growing appreciation that acute kidney injury, first of all, sets you up for chronic kidney disease. So it's not just acute. And that even when your serum creatinine recovers, you probably have some subclinical chronic kidney disease or CKD um, with a very normal serum creatinine. So your your serum creatinine is a really poor biomarker of kidney function, to be honest, after I've just talked it up for about five minutes. But um, it's kind of like watching a big cruise ship in the middle of the ocean. And if you want to see where the cruise ship is, you would want a GPS tracker. We don't have a GPS tracker for kidney function. Serum creatinine is like watching the wake, the wake of the ship to determine where it is right now. So there's about a 24, 48-hour, even 72-hour lag between when you have acute kidney injury and when your serum creatinine begins to rise. Same thing on the flip side with recovery. You could already be in renal recovery, and your creatinine might just be plateauing and not, not it might even still be rising. So, um, so. I think acute kidney injury leads to CKD is an important take-home message. It's not just the kidneys. It's not just acute. When I say it's not just the kidneys, acute kidney injury leads to a really, it's been associated with a high um, mortality and um, morbidity, sorry, morbidity and mortality. Um, and so first of all, it's really common in the adult literature. It's actually been shown that it's safer to have a heart attack than to have acute kidney injury. Get out of here. I know. I'm glad you're seated. It's crazy impressive. It is impressive. And so we're talking about mortality as well as hospital length of stay. Um, And in pediatrics, uh, we were recently, Stu Goldstein has led the way on a lot of this work. But, um, you know, about a year ago, we published the AWARE results, which was a multi-centered study looking at the incidence and epidemiology of acute kidney injury in pediatric patients in the ICU. And basically about a quarter of the kids, or at least 20% of the kids in the ICU developed acute kidney injury. And that's using the KDGO, kidney disease, improving global outcomes um, definition. And so there are three stages of KDGO, acute kidney injury, where stage one is kind of mild. And it's important there to note that even just a bump, your bump of your creatinine is 0.3 mg per deciliter, which we would also we would usually often kind of blow off, maybe not in smaller kids, but certainly in our older kids. That's stage one. That's stage one acute kidney injury. Now there are serum creatinine um, criteria and there are urine output criteria. Stage two and three are considered more severe. If you um, meet criteria for stage three acute kidney injury by urine output, urine output criteria, so oliguric, those kids have a 30% hospital mortality rate. So this is super common and, you know, it's it's significant. And we know this clinically, right? If your kid's in the ICU um, and they're not making urine, these are the kids that are really sick regardless of their primary diagnosis. And so, you know, it, it, it really impacts care. And it's not, you're probably wondering, well, what's up with the mortality like we can dialyze? That is, you know, dialysis is second only to putting a, a man on the moon as far as human badass achievement in my mind, we can dialyze off the, the um, if you think about the criteria for renal replacement therapy, AEIOU, right? right? Acidosis, electrolytes, ingestion, or inborn errors of metabolism, volume overload, and uremia. Dialysis can, can kind of take care of those um, classic uh, sequelae of acute kidney injury. That's not why these these patients die. It's, it's, um, 
it's the systemic sequelae that we're not really thinking about. So yeah. acute kidney injury isn't just in the kidneys. It causes all kinds of systemic perturbations, right? So your serum IL-6 goes up, your lungs get leaky. So if you're on the ventilator, um, your lungs are more likely to get wet. You're going to need more ventilator days. If you have pneumonia, you're more likely to get septic from your pneumonia. If you're septic, you're less likely to be able to fight your infection because there's also immune dysfunction. So it's all these systemic kind of sneaky um, sequelae of acute kidney injury that have really been kind of hammered out from the animal model literature looking at acute kidney injury sequelae. And so the take-home messages of AKI is even a quote-unquote bump in your serum creatinine with 0.3 is significant. You're probably maybe not even catching the real degree of acute right, kidney injury that yet. Far behind, I don't think I realized it could be 48 to 72 hours. Yeah. Um, and then remember, it's it's not just the kidneys. So it's not just acute and it's not just the kidneys. And I think if we approach it with that kind of respect, then we'll come a long way. Also about 20%, sometimes some of the literature supports 30% of acute kidney injury is iatrogenic, as Doug Jones would say, iatrogenesis imperfecta. Are you about to insult my ibuprofen? Well... <laughs> Not just ibuprofen. I, I really harness um, a grudge against all NSAIDs. Um, that being said, I carry them with me all the time. I take them all the time. But public service announcement, no one ever should take any NSAID when they're dehydrated. right? If we think about autoregulation, brushing off some of our cobwebs about how we maintain our glomerular filtration rate, in the setting of dehydration, our afferent arterioles, our blood supply that... Um, perfuses, goes into the the gloms, the glomeruli, that's prostaglandin dependent in the setting of volume contraction and giving NSAIDs, anything that inhibits prostaglandin. So I think even aspirin might do that. Um, it can really, really knock off your GFR. Um, add an ACE inhibitor where you're also vasodilating the, um, or an ARB and you're vasodilating the efferent arterial and you can get fulminant renal failure. Now, we sometimes do this on purpose as nephrologists, we call it a medical nephrectomy. I do think that medical nephrectomies though should be done on purpose, not by accident yeah, and under the not, supervision not of a nephrologist. Yeah, I think that's we'll, we'll do that though sometimes on, like on a bad nephrotic, right? Someone where we'll try to mitigate their proteinuria. Um, but we do it all the time in medicine on accident. And um, I worry about, you know, all the kids who come into triage and, oh, mom gave acetaminophen at home, but they still feel warm. So as part of their triage care, they get right. ibuprofen. Um, I would prefer they got a warm washcloth, but I am biased. And again, I do have ascertainment by because I'm sure, you know, thousands of kids do this and most of them probably don't have AKI. Some of them do, though, that haven't been diagnosed <laughs> and they've just been not checked or, you know, recovered enough. Um, but some of them end up on dialysis and that's not um, an overstatement or I, embellishment. I've said not infrequently um, and only partially joking that I think half of my business in the ER uh, could be solved if we put a machine out front that kid would step on it, it would weigh them. It would dispense them Tylenol and ibuprofen and a school note, and then they could be on their way. So I, you're probably not a fan of that. I, I would maybe throw in a physical exam. Oh, yeah, and a provider's assessment and plan. I don't know. I, <laughs> why'd you go to medical school, Dr. Woods? <laughs> to make money. Oh, okay. I really, really didn't work so out. I'm, so I'm not going to be able to recruit you into nephrology then? <laughs> uh, well, I, I don't know. Probably, probably not at this point. <laughs> it's never too late. All you need is a pulse and an interest. Actually, just a pulse. <laughs> That's what I was told. <laughs> so, um, so talking about acute kidney injury, um, it, you may not be able to simplify this enough for our discussion today, but uh, what do we do if we notice it? Oh, yeah. It's uh, renal rest. 
I'll give you a little bit more of an answer. So basically, we don't want to do um, more damage. So like mitigate the ongoing insults that we might be causing. We really aim for euvolemia. Remember, lungs like to be dry, but kidneys like to be wet. So um, if we want, we don't want them pre-renal because that will further their renal injury. So if they're dry, certainly you can give them a bolus, but you, you want to maybe be very thoughtful about a bolus, maybe not a 20 per kilo, maybe you know, a 10 per kilo or five per kilo, especially if you don't know if they're making urine or not. But we want euvolemia. We do not want fluid overload, particularly if we don't know if they're going to make urine. It makes us feel better as providers sometimes to give a big furosemide slug um, in the setting of no urine output or little urine output. Um, again, we want to be thoughtful. So first we want to make sure they're euvolemic. They're not going to be able to make urine or respond if they're dry. Um, and then if we are going to do a furosemide stress test, we want to actually dose it properly. So typically a furosemide stress test is one mg per kilo once IV. They call it Lasix because it lasts six hours. So then you monitor for response. Um, and then, you know, if they don't respond to that, then there's no evidence of, oh, I should give a higher dose or I should give, you know, a Bumex drip or, or something else. Like give them that one good chance, re assess if there was a response, but don't keep trying. Sometimes people will do like a small dose and it's not really a frozenide stress test or they'll do, um, they'll just switch to and try many different things. But if they don't respond to that, they're probably not going to respond to other things. So back off. Now, if they're not um, diuretic naive, then you can up that dose to 1.5 mg per kilo if it's like a kid on chronic diuretics. Um, but typically, you know, we'll do that once and usually we're involved by then. And then, of course, on every – this is part of my dot phrase when I chart in the in the electronic health record. But it's, you know, thank you for the consultation. But please follow strict ISOs, daily weights, avoid nephrotoxins, and renally, do renally dose all meds. And, again, that's, that's kind of renal rest. So then beyond that, if they're requiring renal replacement therapy, um, then we will do that. But there, there's a lot of medical management that we can do before they typically need that as long as – and one of the big things that precipitates needing dialysis is volume status. And certainly a kid might be euvolemic, but um, if they're anorectic, they can't get in adequate nutrition. That's an indication for dialysis. You know, we, we need to provide nutrition to critically ill children. So um, – so, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of AKI in a 30-second rundown. And that's going to be it for part one. Part two will be up in the next day or so. I've been your host, Dr. Jason Woods. Please keep the conversation going by finding me on Twitter at jwoodsmd, via email at littlepatientsbigmedicine at gmail.com, or at the Little Big Med website, www.littlebigmed.com. Don't forget to head on over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. It really does help other people find the show. This podcast is recorded in the studios of the Digital Scholarship Accelerator at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 